This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country podcast from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country. Looking out over a huge stretch of sand on the island of Jersey and if the waves are being pushed on a brisk southwesterly wind so is the seagrass here on the dunes and my backside is parked on a blooming great lump of concrete one of many many lumps of concrete around this island evidence of the occupation of these islands during the second world war the only part of the british isles to be under german occupation the physical evidence of the German occupation is almost everywhere you look, but Open Country this week has come to Jersey to explore what's only now really beginning to emerge as a full picture, and that is how the islands did resist the German occupation. They weren't passive, they didn't acquiesce, as some people would think. They were mischievous, they did as much as they could in their own way to fight the German occupiers. And I guess uh, Dr Jilly Carr of Cambridge University, it's easy to look at these physical pieces of wartime and to forget that this is an essentially human story it's the story of the occupiers who came here and those who were here before they came and had to survive the occupation I think the thing is that when people talk about the resistance, the first thing they think about is um, the resistance in France and people with guns. And there's this perception that if it wasn't guns, if it wasn't military, if it didn't help the war effort, then it didn't count. But indeed, there was lots of resistance. And what sort of resistance was there? How did it manifest itself? A whole range. I mean, we on the one hand, we have people who didn't surrender their radios, but people would hang on to them to listen to the BBC news, to hear the latest in the war news there were those who gave humanitarian aid to uh, to slave workers to forced workers they would give them food give them clothes offer shelter there were people who would maybe carry out tiny little acts of sabotage like cutting telegraph wires or they would um, pour sand into the petrol tanks of german vehicles And why do you think so little over the years has been said of what happened here? Were you taught about the Channel Islands at school? Tell me, when you were doing history, did you learn about the Channel Islands? I wasn't told. I'm not sure that I was. No, I don't think so. And the thing is that the the Channel Islands occupation has never been part of the, the mainstream UK curriculum. And it is said that the historical reason for this is that Churchill saw it as deeply embarrassing that part of the British Empire, or part of the British Isles, had been occupied by the Germans. And so... There's a lot of ignorance, even in the United Kingdom, about what happened in the Channel Islands. I'm half Channel Island, my mum's a Guernsey girl, and uh, so I sort of feel quite insulted when English people say to me, oh, well, I didn't know the Channel Islands were occupied. And And I think it should be far better known, and I hope that by the research I'm doing with my team, we can really bring that story to a wider audience. The sea, I guess, is on its way in now. A couple of tractors over there, and we can see the tractor tyre marks coming up across the sand towards the seawall here, and we're taking shelter from this rather brisk, uh, I guess, what, southwesterly wind, southerly wind, anyway, uh, in behind this concrete uh, gun emplacement, this German emplacement. It's, it seems extraordinary to me, Jilly, that paperwork, evidence, is still emerging 60, what, 65, 66 years later. Why is it taking so long to to come to light? To the delight of historians, archaeologists like you. Exactly. I think people still have things in their attic. Last year we were given some files by 
the family of a chap called Frank Fuller. Now, Frank Fuller was a Guernseyman who had worked on the Guernsey Underground News Service during the war. He had listened illicitly to the BBC and he had um, written down a newsletter along with four of his friends who, who worked on this. He didn't know them, but they were all doing the same thing. And um, he was a, quite a remarkable man because after the war he made it his job to collect people's testimonies of the acts of resistance that they had done and their testimonies of what had happened to them in prison and various concentration camps as part of a way of claiming compensation from the German government because the British and the German government came to um, an agreement in the mid-60s that those who had suffered in German concentration camps or similar institutions, so not prison of war camps but concentration camps, would be eligible for compensation. He kept duplicates of many of those testimonies in a briefcase which went in the attic and the Foreign Office kept the originals and those exist as closed files. So the only way to get hold of them was to get hold of Frank Fowler's family. So I put an article in the Guernsey Press and I asked if anyone knew if he had members of his family still around in the island and his daughter got in touch. And I said, well, do you have any papers from your father? And she said, well, I've got some stuff somewhere but you won't be interested, it's nothing. And I said, well, could you have a little look? And, you know, and she said, well, you're, really, you won't. You know, I found some stuff at the back of my wardrobe. And, you know, but it, I've had a look. It's, it's nothing. You know, I'll probably throw it out. And I said, well, could I, no, could I, could no. I have a look? <laughs> and she gave it to me. And, uh, you know, I, I remember we, she met me at Guernsey Airport. And I, I went back to the hotel and I tipped the papers out on the table. And I was just bouncing around the room, <laughs> shrieking, making kind of... <laughs> and I realised that this was the most amazing resistance archive that really had ever come out of the Channel Islands. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was just solid You're gold. You're excited really. just I remembering know, it I know, now, aren't I, you? I phoned my two <laughs> colleagues immediately and just kind of, you know, speechless on the phone, you know, ah! <laughs> Yeah, and it was, it was just amazing because having these testimonies... Because the thing is that I think people from the Channel Islands who were sent to prisons and sent to concentration camps didn't tell their families that story... I think that it was there's a lot of untold stories of what people suffered in prison and I think as a way of acknowledging that resistance did happen in the Channel Islands and a lot of people did very brave things by bringing those stories to the public attention I think it's a very important way of honoring those people who did something brave. We've come up a cinder path into a quarry, it's still uh, working at one end of the uh, operation by the look of it. And uh, here in a, a bowl of rock, lots of boulders have either tumbled down or have been brought down. Uh, and I guess this doesn't look terribly different to the way perhaps it looked in the 1940s when this part of the island, when the whole of the island was, was occupied. And I'm with Bob Lesueur, who uh, as an islander, a 19-year-old islander, was, uh, was staying here uh, as an office worker, but this particular site, Bob, has a relevance for you. What happened here? Well, this quarry was being worked by the Germans, uh, this lovely Jersey red granite, because they were building a sea wall, which was an anti-tank wall, and they were building bunkers, anti-aircraft batteries. We had 144 anti-aircraft guns on this 45 square miles of island. And this was all part of Hitler's plans all to make the, the Channel Islands, Jersey in particular, a fortress. These quarries were worked by slave workers, uh, slave people workers. the Germans had captured in other parts of the Axis campaign. Exactly. One particular Russian 
eventually fell into your hands. Explain how that happened. He fell into my hands because uh, I knew him already. I knew the lady who was sheltering him. He'd escaped from this quarry. He'd escaped from this particular quarry. He'd been ill-treated so much, he decided to try and escape. And he told his friends that at some point in the morning, his signal would be that he would wander over to the right of where I'm standing, where there was a low wall, and he would be pretending to urinate, and the others would begin banging their shovels and pretending to have a fight, which worked because it drew the attention of the guards. He then climbed up through the undergrowth, through the hill that you can see over to my right, where I'm pointing, and up to the top of the hill, where he found a little hut. And this all sounds highly dramatic, but it was true. There was a, the door was half adjacent, and he pushed it very gingerly, and then he felt hands around his throat. And as a reflex action, he cried out in Russian, and the hands were released. This was another Russian SKP in the same hut, who told him that there was a farmer living nearby who was coming to him every evening with food. And the particular Russian I was talking about, Fyodor Polikopovich Burri, went to a widow, a Mrs. Gould, and he had to move from there because she was denounced and he was with other members of her family. He couldn't stay there because they also had escaped Russians and I was able to get him into a place that was more permanent and secure. And through him, I did get to know of other SKPs. And was this part of a formal resistance movement? Were you given instructions by a, a resistance commander or, or was this a kind of an informal... Uh, set up where you offered help for humanitarian reasons when it presented itself to you? Absolutely no organisation. The island was simply overrun with German military. Uh, at one point, I know, there was one German to every three of us, including old people and babies. So there was no resistance movement of the kind that existed in France. You know, we have no forests, we have no areas where landing grounds could have been cleared. So it was impractical, it would have been impossibly dangerous Quite to have impossible. done anything. And the hiding of escaped prisoners, nobody, you didn't let the, the next-door neighbours know that you had an escaped Russian. It was too dangerous. And that was perhaps what sort of began the myth and what perpetuated the myth, that there was a, a fairly acquiescent population here who, yes. who resisted in only token, sort of passive ways. Uh, that's evidently not the truth now. I never saw it as part of a resistance that was going to help to win the war. Uh, one did it because, my God, they needed help. I was able to place... I could count up. I think it were perhaps seven men at, at different periods with different people, farmers mostly, that I knew. And I never told a farmer, if I'd taken a chap off him and put somewhere else, I didn't tell him where that fellow had gone, and nor would I tell him where he'd come from. Because 
You didn't tell anyone anything they didn't absolutely have to know. Noirmont is a little finger of land that sticks out, juts out in a southerly direction and over the generations this has been a very, very important position militarily. But what we're here to see is these grey, brown, rotting concrete structures all around the fortifications that the Germans built here in the Second World War. It's difficult to imagine 60 or so years later what it must have been like. There's a man sitting nearby a big grey steel door, and he has in his right hand a key. And that key presumably unlocks the big steel grey door, Martin Walton. I'm going to open up what is the command bunker for uh, this uh, battery, Lothringen it's called, actually. It's one of the coastal artillery batteries that was uh, situated around the island, of which there were eventually nine. Um, Hitler was very keen on making... Jersey and the other Channel Islands up to fortress standards. So this is quite a massive structure, as you'll find out. So down an increasingly gloomy set of concrete stairs with the treads just capped off on the nose with some rusting steel. And actually, the thing you notice holding onto the handrail is how damp and clammy and saltwater-laden the atmosphere must be down here. Through another pair of glass doors, and yet another pair. So this is the upper floor. This is where everything actually happens. And everything would be worked out down in this operations room. The concrete encasing us is whitewashed. Uh, the steelwork is painted in a sort of utilitarian military cream colour, German issue cream paint. There's just little puddles of water here and there where it's beginning to, to seep through the soil and through all these feet of concrete uh, onto the concrete floor beneath us. These places were presumably abandoned quite quickly at the end of the war and a, a lot of the stuff was, was simply left in them, uh, munitions, equipment and so on, ready for you as young inquisitive boys to discover. It, it's a totally different world. In those days, you might take a gun down to the beach, but I remember going down to the Coop Bay and firing away with a friend. Uh, I had a Luger, he had a P-38, had cans floating in the water, and uh, we just casually walked back up, and this old lady came back. She wasn't concerned with the fact that we were shooting or anything like that. She said, I hope you haven't been shooting at the seagulls. So it was a totally different attitude. If you did that today, of course, you'd be shot by the police from the top of the cliffs by a sniper. Of course, we have a much uh, different, a much changed uh, relationship with risk these days. Uh, did you appreciate the risk that you and your mates were taking as you wriggled your way down into these bunkers and stole, requisitioned, whatever the word is, these things that so fascinated young boys? I think... Some of us were sort of more careful than others, you might say. We've now emerged blinking into the midday sun. You can imagine at the end of a shift down there in the dank, in the cold of a Channel Islands winter, it would be uh, quite pleasant <clears throat> perhaps to, to get topside. What happened at, at the end of the war, that most of the dangerous equipment was actually dumped or taken out in boats and dumped near Herds Deep. But in these particular tunnels, things like bazookas, which are really only pipes without the rocket, were part of these things that had actually been put inside. So in order to get these, 
you had to dig your way into the tunnels, which the forces thought they had sealed. Um, young children were getting in there and they dug a tunnel down through the rubble to the ventilation shaft and they cleared the ventilation shaft and they got through there. So you had something which was, oh, probably 18 feet long, which you had to crawl through. And then there was a sort of right-angled turn. And there were children who got stuck. So their mates had to tie ropes to them and pull them out again, you know, or wait till they got a bit thinner. <laughs> <laughs> but there were no real fertilities until some children lit a fire inside, and, of course, there was no ventilation. And that's when the deaths occurred in the 60s of... Um, a couple of Victoria College pupils. Standing on the promenade uh, on the sunny side of St Helier, looking out across the bay at low water, it looks a bit like a lunar landscape, lots of rocks, needle-like rocks sticking out of the, the water and out of the sand here on the foreshore. And uh, behind us is a hotel called the Marina Hotel. And here... In 1939, a young man and his brother arrived, 12-year-old Leo Harris and his 15-year-old brother. They'd been brought here from Edinburgh by their family because the family thought, ironically, that they'd be safer here, safer from the Germans. That didn't turn out quite the way your father planned, Leo. I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not. Very different. When Dad thought we'd be here for the six weeks, the duration of the war, as they all thought, and uh, when we were about to leave to go back to Edinburgh in June 1940... All of a sudden, they, somebody came into the house we were staying in at St Helier and said, your hotel has been left open to the winds, the manager has evacuated, as many people were. And we decided, or my father decided, he'd come down and lock up the hotel. But when he came back, that was the last opportunity to leave. And the next thing we knew, we had moved into the hotel and the Germans had arrived in the island, very quickly indeed. Conventional history has it that the islands were pragmatic and couldn't really resist in anything more than a token way. That uh, conventional wisdom is now being questioned by some of the papers that have been uh, rediscovered uh, and are being released all these years later. What did you know of the resistance? How did you, how did your brother, how did your father resist, either in a passive way, in a mischievous way, or in a, in a more active and organised way? Now, you say mischievous things, yes. We couldn't help doing things which were amusing to us. And on one occasion from here, we went with about five of us altogether to the top of Mount Bingham, where we'd just driven over, down to the harbour. And down there, there's a very, very big German bunker inside the harbour with steel doors. They're about an inch and a half thick. And I, my job was to stand on the top by the roadway, whistling a happy little song, which I can still remember to this day, the tune. And... Uh, there was something just like that. I kept whistling that one over and over again. And uh, as long as they could hear that, they would know things were clear. But if I changed the tune, then they knew it wasn't clear. And they got down to this bunker and they removed all the iron rations and anything else, chocolate, whatever was handy. They never took any ammunition or stuff like that. That didn't interest us. We wanted the food if possible. But we made a big mistake, which happened by taking out, for no good reason, a German field dressing. So when we saw it was full of cotton, we just sort of dumped it in a cupboard. We should have got rid of it. Because when the Gestapo came to search the hotel some months later, I was ordered by the sort of man in charge, a man called Wolf, to go upstairs here to the first floor, to be out of his way. And I found Bernard, one of the younger members of the Gestapo, they're all in civilian clothes, 
and uh, I found Bernard searching which what was the uh, reception area of the hotel on the first floor. He suddenly turned to a cupboard and started pulling out papers, and guess what came out? This blessed pack with German script all over it. And he looked at it, and he knew he'd found a real piece of treasure as far as they were concerned. So this tied us in with a raid on a German monk for sure. And he turned round, and he saw me, and he strode over to me, slapped it into my hand, and said, get rid of it, quick! And I ran up the stairs to this next balcony, which is now gone, and I threw it from there, as you can see the distance, into the tide, which was just coming in. It was just lapping. It was a lovely day. I can still see it, this sort of, you know, where the tide glistens with the sun on it, and the, the sand was so beautifully yellow, and this thing just fell into the water just on the edge. And I ran to my own bedroom on the same floor and I took a little shotgun I'd been given by a farming friend and I threw it out at the same time and it landed on the beach, not in the water. It was too heavy for me to throw it further. And then Wolf came upstairs and said, Get downstairs, Ross! And I went down the stairs back to the kitchen and my father was sitting there and he said to me, You'd better go to school. I, I could see now he was trying to get me safely out of the way. Mm. And I said, Then about two o'clock in the afternoon, I said, No, Dad, I can't go with the Gestapo and, you know, Mum and Dad. My brother had all been taken away. He was already with the Gestapo somewhere else outside the hotel, probably in the prison. And uh, my father said, No, no, go to school. And Wolf, to my surprise, said, Nine, go to school he said to me. So I'm the only boy in the British Isles I know who was ever ordered to go to school by the Gestapo. <laughs> and that small kindness that the Gestapo officer showed you upstairs was potentially a, a lifesaver for you and it your was. family. I mean, they found plenty of other things. They never found the two rifles we had because that was my when my father saw the Gestapo lorry with the gendarmerie arrive. He got hold of Francis, who happened to be at home, and he said to him, come up here. Look out, but don't go near the window. Do you see those two boys at the Gestapo? Do you know them? Sir Francis, yes, they're at school. Would they know anything about you? Sir Francis, yes, I think they know I've got the rifle. They'd taken a German army rifle. So he said, take both rifles, go down this set of steps here, but behind you, with the bicycle, and strap them on the handlebars, cover them over with hessian or anything, and push it along there, and go up to... We had a store uh, cottage up in St Helier, which has now been long since demolished, and he said, put it in there, but don't bring back the key. So when Francis came back down the road, having pushed his bike for a long distance, he was really perspiring heavily. As soon as he came into the back of the hotel, the Germans grabbed him, and he was in prison for many months till the end of the war, threatened with execution because he had taken a German army rifle. And your thoughts when your father and, and brother were taken away... Um I guess you perhaps didn't know for sure that you'd ever see them again even. Absolutely. I was devastated completely. I can't think of any other time that I felt so low. My mother left the hotel for some reason at that time to probably go to see somebody, see if she get some help of some sort, and she left me alone in the kitchen, and the arga was burning, and there were two easy chairs we used to use in front of it, and I pulled one over against the corner of the arga into a corner where my father's overcoat was hanging up, and I sort of snuggled myself into that, curling up on the chair, and all of a sudden there was a loud knock on the door, and I thought, oh, no, the Gestapo were back again. And I went to the door leading into the hotel from outside, and I could see in the glass, which is obscured, the shape of a, a man on his own standing there. And as I opened the door, he took off his hat, and he said, ah, oh, you must be Leo. I'm a good friend of your father's. Can I come in? So I invited him in, and he sat down. He said, come on, sit down beside me. Tell me what's wrong. 
So I told them, and he said, your father will be back in five days. I couldn't believe it, that he would know that. I knew then he must be a German army officer who had full information and a decent man. And then he got up to go, and I realised I hadn't heard about Francis. And I said, when will Francis be back then? And he didn't want to answer, I could see that. And he said, he'll be back, but he will be safe, and he'll be in prison until the end of the war. Do you know, my father was back. He climbed up the balcony one night and knocked on the window where I was sleeping with my mother because we were both sleeping in the same room by that time. We were so desperate. And uh, I'm always remembering him coming in, the cold cheek of mine. It was just absolutely wonderful. My brother was back at the end of the war and nothing had happened to him.